Hello and welcome to the 115th episode of the Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are, and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half, discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is actually a comic called Midwinter Landfall by Dan Whitehead. Dan! Hello. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, my name is uh, Dan Whitehead. I am a, a writer. Um, people may know me from Eurogamer, where I worked for about uh, 10 years. Uh, but prior to that, I worked for PlayStation magazines, Xbox magazines, all the way back to the Amiga days in sort of early 90s. Um, so people may have heard of me from there, but I've also every now and again dipped out to write comics and sometimes dipped out to write scripts for video games. Yes, and we'll be delving into that later on in the show. Good. And just to put it out there now, your name is Dan, so anyone that's now doing the Alan Partridge thing, can just do it now. <laughs> yeah, get it out of your system. Get it out of your system. I'm not doing it, okay? I'm not doing it. It's insulting. I might be doing it in my head right now, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm sure it's a joke that you just so love. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, oh, you're in a pub and someone mentions <coughs> your name and then they start yelling it over and over <laughs> in that very funny... It's a great skit, it's got to be said. It's a great it is. Skit. There are worse crosses to bear, I There think. are far worse crosses to bear, but really, really, everyone just calm down. Right, okay. Thanks, Dan, <laughs> for being so accommodating for our, um, you know, audience. Um, thanks, Mum. Um, so, how did you make your start writing and commentating about video games <clears throat> well like i say it was it was 1991 um i'd sort of grown up playing zx spectrum and i loved all the spectrum magazines crash especially your sinclair that was a huge influence on me um and i always wanted to write about games and i actually told the careers advisor at high school in like 1989 <clears throat> you know what do you want to do i said i want to write about games and they looked at me like i basically said you know i want to milk ghosts or something they were like that's not a thing that doesn't exist um you know go and work in a factory like a a good northern boy um so i went off to do my a-levels and then literally even before i got my a-level results um my dad spotted an advert in the local newspaper for a magazine publishing company which was just up the road um who were looking for someone to come and write about games And that uh, that magazine was Amiga Computing, which was like a kind of fairly technical um, Amiga magazine, but they were launching a little game supplement in the middle of it. Oh, nice. Okay. And they were looking for someone to edit that. I went for the job, uh, wrote a review of Powermonger, the uh, sorely underrated uh, Peter Molyneux game. The Peter Molyneux game no one really talks about. No, I've tried. It's a shame. It's, it's, it's great. I've, uh, every time <coughs> i played it, it's like, oh, I've got a second general now? I just, <laughs> now I'm confused. I was okay with the one dude. Now I've got a second one. I've got a second army. Yeah. They don't get on with. It's like, I just... <laughs> yeah, I, it's one of those games that I want to actually go back to, but uh, and you'd be surprised. Like, well, why would you... It's decades old. doesn't matter. Mm. It's like Magic Carpet. That game's awesome. Yeah, you know, I, tried, and, I tried replaying it the other day, actually. I literally couldn't make head a tale of it. No, you can't. It was from the days where there was no such thing as tutorials. It was just like, if you haven't read the manual, you'd, yes, you're out of luck. Yes, yeah, right. But anyway, I wrote a review of that, um, and they liked it, but because I didn't have any experience at all of anything... Um, I didn't get the job editing the section, but they did offer me a staff writer position. And then in about six months, the guy who was the editor moved on to a different magazine in the company, and I became the games editor anyway. And that was that, basically. 
all of a sudden I was I was writing about games and getting paid for it. And like I say, I hadn't even got my A-level results at that point. So it was uh, literally fresh out of school, straight into the job I'd always dreamed of. Just and to it's, go, been, it's been downhill ever since. Yeah, just to go back a bit, because I have a theory about British journalism or British video game commentary or whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, it was very different to our North American cousins, as we know, mm. uh, because they're much more differential uh, in their, you know, coverage. Um, yeah. They weren't so, uh, as irreverent as we mm. were. I do blame, I'm going to use the word blame, maybe sort of be inspired by it's probably more, is, is your Sinclair. Yeah. Uh, and Newsfield Publications as well, to a point. Uh, but definitely <coughs> your Sinclair. And people bought that even though they didn't have a spectrum. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've very, very much later, um, I was working for the company that is Retro Gamer magazine. And um, they asked me if I wanted to edit the Your Sinclair supplement, which was like a kind of celebration of Your Sinclair. And it was going to be like officially licensed from Future, which then owned the rights to the magazine. So it was going to be technically be the last issue of Your Sinclair. Um, and I, I jumped at it. So I actually got to contact all the people from Your Sinclair that I'd sort of grown up reading. And they all basically said, you know, we. We did it like we were doing smash hits. You know, we weren't trying to make a computer magazine. We were trying to make a fun pop magazine that just happened to be about games rather than the top 20. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that came across quite strongly. And uh, I still think it went on to things like Digitizer as well. On the, on oh, God, the yeah. That was yeah, just like, was my other big thing, yeah. Yeah, you just try to think, why, why are people writing like this? And you try to explain to American journalists about this, uh, of which I know a fair few, and like to explain to them over and over again, because we just didn't really care, and yeah. but we did care. Yeah, we cared about the games, but it's yeah. okay to have fun with it, you know. Yeah, it's just, it isn't like you know high art. It's like I'm shooting a, a you know a, a sausage at a banana. I mean, just how can you take this seriously? There's no nuance here. It's just bollocks in many cases, <laughs> and that's okay. That's all right. And uh, you know, it's it's something that uh, I find fascinating about how. Uh, British journalism, uh, and it's still, I still think it exists. Mm. I disagree, but I do, you know, when I read reviews, and it's still got that patter, that pace to it, even after people are writing this stuff that are like, you know, 20 years younger than you or I, are still doing mm. it. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that, that was that kind of the template was set quite early, I it think. It was, yeah, there's like a reverence or constant. Uh... So you said you moved on uh, through into digital land, didn't you? Into web stuff, um, or is that, was that quite a lot? Well, of I, I did I did the Amiga magazine and Atari ST user at the same time. You'll be pleased to hear I was I was an editor of games across both of those. Right. Um, basically, the ST one was exactly the same as the Amiga one, but we just took out the games that weren't released for the ST. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, now, now I'm just yeah. yeah. Um, sound slightly less good. Okay, right. Other than that, awesome. <laughs> uh, so then after that I thought I should probably go to university and have the university experience that all my friends had already had right. um, so I went off and did that and then I came back and did uh, PlayStation magazines because by that time the PlayStation was the thing mm. um, but then I kind of did a little bit of a, a left turn and I went to work for a company um, doing licensed comics so this was like mid to late 90s and um I worked on like Scooby Doo, Tom and Jerry, Rugrats, Looney Tunes. I did a lot of Looney Tunes stuff. <coughs> uh, I did a Star Wars book. Um, so a lot of that stuff, which was kind of like another thing I'd always wanted to do. Um, and then for you know the sort of next ten years or so, I kind of veered between sort of 
comics and things like that, and writing about games. Hmm. So it's been a bit of a bit of a weird parallel career. Yeah, I always find that you, you've obviously touched on several major milestones in video game. Like early nineties, you had the Amiga. AST were more the Amiga actually dominating, and then the consoles took over for a bit, and then Half Life arrived. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then like, and then and Baldur's Gate, and like everyone went. So people still play games on the PC. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I kind I kind of missed that the first time round because I was I was working on the PlayStation mags at that time, and whichever platform I don't know if it's still the case, but you know, in those days, if you were on a PlayStation magazine, you basically just played PlayStation stuff, and you might see you know, a Nintendo game across the office or a Sega Saturn as it drifts by in the night. But, um, yeah, the PC stuff, you know, we'd, you kind of hear about it, but there was never any time to yeah. really go and do anything about it unless you were being paid to do it. That's so, right. it was, uh, But then, it's, then you couldn't help you but hear about it. Like, this is ridiculous. What, we've had the Doom thing, yeah, but then what, half, what is this Half-Life thing? Oh, God! Yeah. And it just yeah. everyone blew their minds. And then Baldur's Gate helped as well. Definitely. Um, um, so, and then of course Diablo, blah, blah 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 blah, all that stuff. I can't believe it happened. It's like this. this I was actually reading an, an article saying today, this month was the best month in 1991 in music terms because apparently um, Nirvana Nevermind came out, and oh, right. and other albums came out. Yeah, in this like period of a month. It was like it was ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, I they think, say the same about um, 1984 for films as well. They do, if you yeah. look at the films that came out in that year, it's just insane. It's like Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom, Beverly Hills Cop. And it's just, oh my God, you know, imagine, <laughs> imagine like if, if one year this, you know, today had that many films that were just so good and you, yeah. it just wouldn't happen. I think it's just like a conversion of points and uh, the planets align and it just happens to have, come out that way. Sometimes you get mm. good years and bad years and that's fine. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a that's interesting sort of. You, you, so it also answers a question I've got for you later about how you're dealing with the comics thing because here we are talking about eventually talking about Midwinter Landfall, at least mm-hmm. the first uh, section or the first story arc of, of Midwinter, Midwinter yeah. comics. You've done it before uh, to a yeah, certain point, yeah. yeah. But this time he's on merging the two rather than writing comics about something entirely different. You actually go well. Let's take a video game and but uh, yeah, yeah. That was the. The kind of the merging of the worlds. So, this question is one of the worst. I don't like asking it, but it's it's important that I ask it as you're a creator. Um, what, okay. What does influence you as a creator of things, do you think? What do you think is the one thing that you orbit around? <clears throat> it's going to sound possibly a bit weird i don't know but i think this comes from for me games was always like my my first medium mm-hmm. that was the first thing as a kid that i remember just being oh this is my thing and just pouncing on it um so i think it's this it's spaces it's that idea of a space or a location or a place and then once you can kind of picture yourself in that place then you get the idea of what kind of stories are going to come out of it and gaming does that better than anything else i think that is that is where gaming distinguishes itself from all the other all the other forms of entertainment um you know in the same way that film is defined by the fact that it has you know a fixed point of view and edits gaming is defined by the fact that you can create a space 
and then you can either guide people through it or you can let people roam around it themselves. Um, so, yeah, whenever I think of the things that have inspired me, even films and books and whatever, it's always been that sense of a place, a location that you can sort of stick your head in and go, wow, I'm in there, you know? Um, you know, whether it's the cantina in Star Wars or, you know, just things like that. It's, it's the it's the places that, that sort of set my imagination off. For me, I have to empathise entirely. I found the world-creating games, the games, even when I was, you know, very early years. In fact, one of the earliest, earliest games I played was in uh, 1981. Uh, I remember this because it's very distinct because it was a playing on a ZX81. And it wasn't mine, it was my friend's. And uh, I did eventually get an 81 for two or three months afterwards, thank God, Christmas time. But uh, it was a game called Star Trail, which is basically Star Trek, but they couldn't call it that because of mm-hmm. reasons. Um, but you, we were captaining, and my, me and my friend and my, one other, I think, there's a group of us, captaining the ship, uh, a ship, uh, which is called um, something similar to the Enterprise, but rhymed with it. And you, you actually just, you actually trekked across the galaxy, picking up fuel, killing Klingons, exploring planets, all of that in this really sort of terrible computer that would crash if you breathed on it in the wrong direction. But it was... And from then, every game that has a world, it then went on to, you know, Elite and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, Dundurak and Turnanog and all that sort of stuff. And then it goes on to, you know, eventually Grand Theft Auto, etc., they're yeah. the ones. They're they're those are the ones that have captured my imagination more than anything. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I do yeah. like the arcade shooters when you know it's fine. Jetpack, get big thumbs up, you know, and oh, yeah. R-Type, especially on the Spectrum. Oh my god! And you know that was amazing how they did that. I still don't know how they did that. It was wizardry, yeah. um, but no, not wizardry. Anyway, <laughs> um, but those games, you know, Ultimas, the Ultima games, which I eventually got into much later on uh, than they actually were released. They, they were just, you know, those games. Those are the ones. Yeah, that, 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 I mean, the, the castle in Attic Attack. I used to dream <sighs> about that. It was, you know, to me that was a real space. Yeah. But I mean, it, it, these days, because graphics have advanced so much, mm-hmm. the idea of world building has become quite visually led. It's kind of, you know, you have to, you know, all the textures and, you know, it has to be a place that's almost photoreal or that kind of stuff. But to me... My favourite game of all time is Chaos, uh, Julian Gollop's strategy game. He's been on the show. Lovely man. And that is literally just a black screen. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and to me, but to me, the, the sort of just this black rectangle arena, to me, that was as exciting and inspiring as, you know, whatever worlds are being conjured up for, you know, the new Mass Effect game. It was, it was, it was an empty space, but it was a space. Mm. And the fact that you could fill it with dragons and gooey blobs and, you know, all these other things, that was what inspired me. So, yeah, even even empty space can be inspiring. I don't, I, I've always tried to resist the temptation to stuff things full of stuff, if you sort of mean. That's an elegant sentence for a writer. But, <laughs> you know, I think, I think it's, it's okay to have empty spaces. Um, I think Red Dead Redemption did that brilliantly as well. Yeah, vast open one landscape th- that was... One of the things I loved about that was it wasn't full of things. Yeah. You could just go out and ride and there wouldn't be, you know, 6,000 little icons going, coming again, coming again, doing this, do this, little mini game over here. You know, you could literally go out there and there would be nothing and that was fine. You could just, you know, 
silence and emptiness are, are vastly underrated, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, Which, again, kind of brings us back to midwinter in a way. It does, yeah. And um, I just find, yeah, you're, you're right about the Chaos game. And thinking about it, it was like an like embryonic version of Magic the Gathering. Mm, no one realised it at yeah. the time. But it's, you were conjuring creatures and throwing them at each other. And occasionally you get shot at. Um, that's how you killed. No, it's, but it's exactly. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, and thankfully you re- resurrected it and uh, turned it into. Some, yeah, yeah, it's. So. Yeah, no, the new one's really good. It is. It is. It is. So, um, who do you most admire in the video game industry, and why? Uh, you mean currently or, or ever? Just ever. Ever. Uh, probably the ones we've already talked about. Julian Gollop's games always had what I thought were very elegant sort of world building, for want of a better term. Um, you know, it was just very, very simple, but very powerful suggestions of worlds in which um, Laser Squad was another one of his that I just loved and played over and over again. Um, you know, you had like however many set missions and I would, I would play them over and over like hundreds of times, even though I knew every inch of the map by that point because I liked, I just liked the way they worked and I liked trying to find out what I can do to make them react differently. And then Mike Singleton, the guy who, who created Minter, although at the time I didn't realise that I was a fan of his. It was only later when I kind of went, oh, and he did that, and he did that, and he did that, and those were all games that I, you know, really remembered loving playing. So I kind of realised afterwards, oh, and there's a there's a thematic cohesion to his uh, catalogue of work that I think is really interesting. Um, he tends not to see that with game developers, I've found. There's, there's, you know, a film director, you can kind of go, you know, okay, you know, Scorsese makes films about these themes and in this styles. Uh, you know, Ang Lee makes films about people who you know, feel repressed. You know, there's, you know, Woody Allen makes Woody Allen films. There's very few game developers, sort of game designers, where you can look at and say, you know, yep, they make that kind of game. Uh, you know, Kojima is one. Uh, Molyneux is another, but even then, there's 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 maybe not so much sense about what they're actually trying to say with their work. I find. Yeah, um, I have to agree with you there. It's you know Molyneux obviously is fascinated by you know the god genre and you know those aspects of it. But looking back over all these games from Populous onwards, I can't quite you know there's there's no point being made. I feel no. You know, he's not saying something about that kind of omnipotence. It's just a fun thing to do, which is fine. But, you know, I do feel that is maybe what holds games back, is that there's, there's to be, sound pretentious about it, but there's, you know, there's very few auteurs. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, there right. are very few people who are like, you know, I'm obsessed with this idea yeah. and I'm going to explore it through gameplay. Yeah. Um, and it's it's hard to think of, you know, certainly in the, you know, the sort of AAA successful arena um it's hard to think of of designers who you know really put their stamp on a project not just in terms of aesthetics but in terms of thoughts and ideas and concepts you're right and a lot of them actually just go off and do very different genres over and over it's like oh we're we're the people did the crazy puzzle game yeah now we're doing this open world mmo yeah what i'd sorry i mean yeah look at (laughs) Look at Hello Games. Let's do really funky sort of uh, arcade sort of riding the arcade sort of 
game with the little motorcycle dude with bright colors yeah. and 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 shininess and and slick visuals and etc. Like, okay, cool, we like this. Now, massive open world stargazing exploration. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> not I, mean, I, think that's, I think that's great in a way. You know, yeah. that sort of just that leap of ambition is amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's just not many games where you can kind of look at them and say, ah, they're making a point. There's, you know. And for listeners uninitiated, <coughs> but what we're Dan and I are talking about, because there's a little bit of shorthand going on here. So for, the, for those who don't know what we're talking about, basically Mike Singleton was, was an extraordinary uh, developer in the 80s yes. and 90s. And he made a series of games which were very sort of early concepts of uh, uh, embryonic play, but all, all embryonic gameplay, sort of, not embryonic, um, and emerging gameplay. Uh, mm. um, whereas you didn't control one character, you controlled many characters, and all had yeah. their own story threads weaving in and out of a world that he, Mike Singleton, had created. It was and are extraordinary games. I'm talking about yeah. Lords of Midnight, um, uh, Doom Dark's Revenge. Uh, and then um, uh, there was, uh, as far as I know, you may correct me, but I think after that it was Midwinter and Midwinter Two. But I know he did. There was there was, there was Dark Scepter. Dark Scepter. In the, in the middle That's of those right, a perfection yes. game. Yeah. But what what I liked about Mike's work, I kind of realised in retrospect, was that all of them had very common ideas at their heart, even though they were quite different games, you know, there were sort of elements of role-playing game, elements of adventure game mm. uh, by the time you get to Midwinds from the Amiga it's like a, a first-person, free-roaming what we would call, you know, a sandbox game these days um, but they are all about exploring a very large space with multiple characters and the interaction between the characters is always key to the gameplay, it's not just you are a guy, wander around, kill all these people, you've got to find people and reach out to them and recruit them or inspire them in some way and then send them off to do whatever they're going to do. Um, so there was always this idea of interaction between characters rather than just, you know, you are following a script. Um, and again, we today we call it emergent gameplay, but at the time I had absolutely no frame of reference for that. It was It was mind-blowing that this was a world that existed and had a backstory but you could kind of prod it and poke it and it would change and you could go back and play the game the next day and it would be completely different different things would happen different characters would live or die um and he was he was the first game developers who work i was aware of who did that yeah i mean i played mid uh lord of midnight over and mm. over i could do the morkin victory within sort of half an hour because <laughs> I knew it so well, I could oh, yeah. oh just uh, far flame, ice crown, done. There you go. But it was like, okay, like, how can you do the military victory? I do. I still know of no one. You may mm. disagree, but I just know of no one who's ever managed to win by military might on that game. Uh, but, it's uh, it was it. It was the fact as well that you. It was on like a 48k machine. Yes. I mean, it's that's that's what you have to. It's a staggeringly small amount of memory to play with. It's like the the JPEG of the cover is bigger than the game. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's very perfect. And yet yeah, it was this. You know, you could go to all these different locations, and the scenery wasn't just here's a picture we've drawn. It was those mountains are mountains. Yeah. And if you keep going north, you those mountains. And if you turn around, the viewpoint will show you where you just came from. It was crude because it was on the spectrum and it was all you know pixels and chunky lines and color clash but it was it was a world yeah. you know yeah. crude one admittedly but 
it was, you know, it wasn't just a, a linear space. And that was, yeah, that still kind of amazes me to this day that that was possible on a computer that was that tiny. And no one really understood it at the time. They just didn't. No, no. Just did not understand. Uh, much like Elite, really, people didn't really understand that until they... Yeah, you, you fly around and you shoot things because yeah. that's your where's, kind of frame of reference. Where's the score? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there's a rating thing. How about that? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Again, I'd like to score. Nope. <laughs> right. Um, so, last question. This is one of my favourite questions because it gets me an idea of the person who I'm talking to and their mm-hmm. kind of likes and dislikes and that sort of thing and what gets them buzzing. You've already given hints about what that is already in the early part of the interview, but I'm going to ask, what are you playing right now? Um, I am playing, in fact, it's paused right in the background now, is uh, Dark Cloud. The old uh, PlayStation 2 uh, game by Level 5. There was a sequel to that, wasn't there, as well? There was, yeah, Dark Chronicle, yeah. yeah. I've got, I've got, they're quite expensive now, by the way, uh, everyone. Uh, uh, they were on sale on the PlayStation Store. Oh, so I, right. I okay. and downloaded them both, because they were, they were both games that kind of came along, and they were the, they were, they were the kind of wonderful surprise games mm. where you're like you know oh what's this let's have a look and then sort of seven hours later you're like this is amazing yeah this is i love this yeah. and it was one of those games that all you know through the years that passed i always remember like oh dark cloud was good yeah. that was a really interesting game um and it is it's it's um it's a sort of in the sort of dragon quest uh final fantasy kind of mold in the sense that it's a jrpg mm. but there's all these weird twists on the formula. I, I tend to like games that do that, that are like, they're rooted in genre, but they kind of go off in their own direction, and kind of go, well, normally the, you'd do this in this game, but we're going to do something completely different. So in Dark Cloud, um, you venture into dungeons which kind of have different levels, and what you're looking for are these like spheres which contain bits of the world that's been destroyed. So there's like houses and furniture and stuff in these balls. Um, and you sort of venture into the dungeon one level at a time, liberating all these bits of the world. And then you go back up to the sort of overworld map. And it kind of becomes a SimCity game where you have to put these towns back together. So you're like, you've, you've found a house in this, like, Pokeball kind of thing. So you put the house down and then you've maybe found the person who lives in that house and you put them in and then you can go and talk to them and they'll say, you know, well, I, I want my house to be near a river because I like fishing. And then you have to go back up to the sort of overworld map and go okay well i can put them there and then it almost becomes like a puzzle game once you've got all the houses and all the all the stuff you have to like move everything around so everyone's happy um and that's that's such a weird concept for an rpg um all of the dungeons are procedurally generated um so it's it's got that kind of which is now you know the current hip thing to do but back then it was really you know unusual in in a jrpg that they were like little mazes that you quickly wandered around, you got all the stuff, and then you came back out again. There was none of this um, ongoing kind of story, massive cutscenes kind of thing. Uh, and the other weird thing is, as well, you don't level up your characters, you level up your weapons. <laughs> um, Sounds like but your, yeah. but your weapons can break, and if they break, they're gone forever. So you're constantly sort of keeping one eye on your weapon to make sure it's not about to break and you're sort of leveling it up and adding things, gems to it and stuff and then you upgrade it and those gems are absorbed into it and then you can you can then turn the, the weapons into spheres which can be attached to new weapons. But all this time, your character is just your character. They've not 
changed, which is, again, a complete inversion of what you're supposed to do in RPGs. Your character evolves and you get new weapons to suit your power yes, level. It's the quest for truth, justice, <coughs> and better stuff. That's what yeah, so I, just, I just love that game. and I've, yeah, yeah. I, I downloaded it and started playing it the other day, and I think I've already put about 15 hours into it. Because wow. so I, still, I still have my copy. It's in a, I, all my games now, my PS2 games or older games, the boxes are gone. I've got no space. Oh, right. I just put them in a wallet. I do still have the the original box PS2 version as well, but it's just um, you know the convenience of having it on PlayStation 4, where I can just fire it up without having to muck about with leads under the telly and stuff. I can't remember. It was it was a it was in a sale. I think it was about six quid or something. Yeah, because on the original on eBay is ridiculous, but because it's you know it's like sort of dot hack like the dot hack series of games. They're similarly mm. ridiculously expensive because no one knew that they're what are that what are that no one no one bought that and then people do buy it and they started playing it and everyone's going these games are amazing and then the, this off the price goes uh, yeah this is the same with yeah. most retro stuff I don't know if you know this I'm sure you do Dan but you know mm. buying an Amiga now it's two hundred quid really <laughs> I, I didn't pay that for mine when I bought one the other exactly. ones exactly well, well you know it's it's that's the general A twelve hundred with an expansion bought in it like ah oh, right yeah we've got to be posh, be posh. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I, I have two some... well one's barely an Amiga anymore I put it in a tower and that was the end of that um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, anything else you're playing um, another one is uh, Carnage Hearts which is a PlayStation one game mm. another Japanese game actually which is Strange because I don't consider myself a huge fan of Japanese games, but these seem to be the ones I'm going back to at the moment. Um, and this is like a kind of like a robot strategy game. Mm-hmm. Um, as a kid, I was a huge fan of Zoids. Did you ever play the um, C64 stroke? Yes, I played the Spectrum game of Zoids. That was strange. Strange and impossible to understand. Yes. <laughs> but they, they was, it was basically the time of Transformers, and everyone had Transformers, and I being a you know a contrary little bugger um i was into zoids instead which were like these kind of robot dinosaurs, dinosaurs and which you know yeah you, you had to you had to assemble them oh. in kit form and they had little clockwork motors inside um and carnage heart is kind of like that in the sense that you you you're building these mechs basically and you you know you get the chassis and the all this kind of stuff um you know the cpu and then you, you actually have to, have to program them there's a section of the game where you have to like get all these different command tiles and put them down to make all these kind of like you know if then statements uh, that will dictate how it will operate on the battlefield. And then once you've done all that, the actual combat side is completely out of your hands. Oh wow! That's what I love about it. It's it's all about the design. And then once you've made what you think is your perfect robot, you send it out, and then there's none of this turn-based strategy. It's just if you've made a stupid robot, it's going to be stupid and get blown up. Um, so it's like so. Robo Rally, isn't it? The board game. I guess, yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, that's another thing I tend to gravitate towards in games, is games where you can kind of set things in motion and then sit back and see what happens. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of games that kind of take control away and say, okay, now see what the consequences are of your, you know, your decisions. Um, not in a kind of telltale games kind of, you know, robot will remember this kind of way, but... Um, mm. The, the fact that things can play out without your input. Yeah. You know, you've taken it this far, this is what happens next, and uh, I'm, I'm always fascinated by games that do that. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, I can see the appeal. It's just the, the fear of, of failure, but then you go, so what? That's what you learn from. Yeah, it's like, um, 
the Kerbal Space Game. Kerbal Space Program. Yeah, yeah that's, that, uh, that's you know that's that reminded me so much of Carnage Heart because it's that kind yeah. of it's a game about tinkering. It is. Um, sticking fins on here, and what if we put the engine there? And oh, it's blown up, but that's yeah. fine because it blowing up was fun, and you know, I'll just tinker some more. Although yeah. the astronauts weren't keen on the blowing up. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I really want to know if the makers of Despicable Me had played Kerbal because I'm sure that the minions are. Uh, Based on. I'm not sure which ones came first, actually. But it, no, it's... no. Yeah, I mean, it's in, in, I, thought, I, I thought FTL was like that. It's not mm. at all. I know what you mean. It's it's more of like you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going. No, no. Here's some serenity. Yeah, Just a little bit. Now you're gonna die, gonna die. <laughs> yes. No, I loved FTL as well. That's yeah. a, that's another game where that's you a can... different kind of not program. It's more reactive. It's like yeah. Hey, you go there, you go there. And, yeah, and I like I, I like the... games that say it's okay. You you are gonna fail. Yeah, there's no shame in that. Yeah. You know, it's it's all about what's going to happen next time. And sometimes, you know, you will learn from experience, and that will help. Sometimes you're just going to get screwed anyway. Yeah, you that know, there's, there's a zen-like kind of calm to games like that. I find even when they're quite frantic, it's there's a sense of you know, oh, okay, you know, I'll try again. Yes, and the, the, it's the, not the, a problem. The shared failure stuff is quite good because of couch play, as they now call it, mm. um, or local play, um, something that you and I grew up with. Um, is is you know thankfully returned and lovers in a curious space time is an extraordinary game it's, of like yeah. shared failure yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, I do like games that say it's okay you know because yeah. so many games these days are all about winning and i think a lot certainly in the sort of triple a space that mm. there's this idea that you can't fail you yeah. know you've got to see the end of the game so it's just going to be like it's like a greasy tunnel and you just kind of slide down it to the end mm. and it's entertaining and it's really nicely presented and everything and you know you feel like you've you know you've certainly had an experience but there's there's no friction to it there's no grit to it there's no kind of like you know Ugh. you know i like games that go you know it's okay you're gonna mess up and that's fine you, you just might see it. the end of this if you do you would have earned it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know whether that comes from you know sort of coming of age in the the era of the coin op where the idea was you are going to spend all your bus fare on this game because you know you are not going to reach the end. You are going to play as long as you can, yeah. you know, and then you're going to put you know another ten p and you're going to play it again. Um, that kind of gameplay loop. Yeah, closest I had that was Outrun. That was the game for me. Mm, Rampage, Rampage was one that I would I loved. Yeah, I can see why. Yeah, yeah. slight giant monsters, I guess. <laughs> must be, must be. Um, Zoids. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it yeah. works. So that's the end of the first half. Well done. Thank you. You got through. What's the score? Yeah. Um, so there, there was no the real boss at the end, apart from that last question, which wasn't really a boss. <laughs> but now we go on to the second half. We delve deep into midwinter. And- Question. So 
the yes that is an Asimov um, but we're not talking about robots or <laughs> rules which don't work anyway because they anyway <laughs> what is Midwinter Landfall um, well I'll put it in context um, I I wrote a retrospective piece about the Midwinter game for Eurogamer uh, and then when Mike Singleton sadly died in 2012 I wrote a sort of lengthy obituary sort of tribute to his entire career again for Eurogamer um, and through that I kind of got talking to some of the guys who worked on Midwinter I think Mike himself actually posted a comment under my Midwinter retrospective which was wonderful um, and through them I sort of found out that um, a guy called Chris Wilde who worked with Mike um, in the sort of end of his career uh, he was the guy who remade Lords of Midnight for iPhone and things like that and remaking Midwinter was next on their agenda <coughs> and I basically said look you know if you need anyone to come on board and help write the story or help write the characters you know the little bits of dialogue or whatever you know I will gladly you know jump on and do that and so over a period of a few years we kind of it's you know it kind of moved forward in fits and starts because it's it's only when you kind of peel midwinter apart and see what goes into it you realize what a huge job it actually is and you kind of think how did they do this on an amiga because it's not just an open world game set on a well i suppose i should explain what midwinter is it's set 60 years after an asteroid impact has sort of covered the earth in ash that then creates a new ice age because the sun can't get through and then 60 years after that the people on uh, this island called midwinter uh they've they're starting to rebuild it's not like a post-apocalyptic game you know they've got little towns they've got uh, geothermal energy and things like that and there is a guy called general masters who basically takes over the island and in the game uh your job is to sort of recruit all the different people from all the different communities dotted all over the island and then use them in a sort of time shifted way to it's almost like a turn-based strategy but in a first person 3d sandbox um so you'll you'll go and recruit somebody and then you'll go okay well i'm going to move him to go and try and attack this you know this uh geothermal station over here and this guy i'm going to use him to go and take out this um as long as they agree to do it yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, they all had, they all had personalities, and some yeah. of them hated each other because they'd had you know affairs with their wives or something in the yeah, past. Yeah, yeah. Other ones would only be recruited if it was like a family member or a friend. So there was yep. this whole other yeah. level. And this is what I mean. It's it's not today. It's fairly easy to make a world like Midwinter to create the island and move around. And not as easy as you might think because it was huge. It's about sixty five thousand square miles or feet. I can't remember, but it's huge, uh, and it can't be procedurally generated like a no man's sky or something like that because it has to be a place that you can memorize yes, and look the, the way around it has to be a single map that you can load in um and so you know not only do you have this huge space that has to be persistent you have um a, a finite number of enemies it wasn't like they constantly respawned you could win the game by literally destroying every enemy vehicle so you've got to have them all following patrol routes all over the island you've got all these different characters you've got you've got that kind of system of what you know their relationships are uh you've got to be able to ski to places you've got to be able to hang glide to places um oh, that was tough <laughs> yeah there's but there's just so many different aspects that are kind of woven into it and the amazing thing is it's like there's still never been a game quite like that 
I mean, these days you kind of you you're kind of used to games where you know first person shooters will have RPG aspects with leveling up and stuff, or you know you'll you'll have games that incorporates RPG aspects or shooter aspects or interactions. At the time, nobody was doing that. Um, and it's just this weird cross-genre hybrid. Um, I think in my retrospective for it, I called it, it's like a, it's like a transitional fossil in the sort of fossil record of gaming from the 80s into the games we have now. You know, stuff like Fallout and, um, you know, the Elder Scrolls and stuff like that. Um, they owe a huge debt to Midwinter because that was the first game to kind of say, no, it, it can be an action game and an adventure and a role-playing game and a strategy game. And all those elements can intertwine. You don't have to stop and go, here is the strategy bit. Um, so, yeah, that's that's basically the premise of the game. And um, we were sort of working on this remake. You know, lots of discussions. Do we do we remake it um, as it was? Do we make a, like a modern-day version of it where it's like old, you know, photoreal-ish, you know, that kind of aesthetic or do we stick with the sort of very very stark polygons mm. of the old game it was basically made up of blue triangles um uh but game development takes a very long time uh even more so when it's you know it's it's a very indie production uh people were just working on it you know in their spare time you know as you know as a tribute to mike um so it would kind of move forward in fits and starts and because my input was basically going to be the creative flourish type stuff towards the end, you know, the writing of the character dialogue and that kind of stuff, you know, I didn't really have much to contribute at that stage. So I thought, well, you know, I want to, I want to get the ball rolling. I want to do something. I want to play around with this world and sort of get myself up to speed. Um, so I thought, well, why don't I do a midwinter comic? Um, and then the question was, well, what story do you tell? Because the game doesn't have a story. The story is what happens when you play it. Mm-hmm. Um, set up as a, you know, like, you know, as you said, post-world of asteroid hitting the world and huge nuclear winter, which isn't a nuclear winter, it's to do with the, the dust yeah. cloud appearing in the sky and uh, most of humanity being wiped out. And then 60 years later, after that, yeah. it starts to re-emerge. And on this... What we didn't explain, everyone, is this, this the midwinter, the, the island of midwinter, which this uh, game is set in, uh, is an ice sheet. Basically. Yeah, yeah, it's all completely frozen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's this backstory, but there's 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 no story to the game, and this is, I mean, it's, it's become quite a cliche now to talk about, you know, the sort of ludo narrative aspects and stuff. Mm. You know, this idea that the story of a game isn't what is scripted; it is what happens in the players brain when they're yeah. playing you know, even pac-man has a story in that sense because it's like you know i just go oh, i just missed it oh you gotta go away with it oh, i've got the power pill and that is you know there's a narrative to that it's just mm. a narrative that exists only while you are playing that particular game yeah but for the time you're doing that is absolutely valid and absolutely gripping story um so yeah with midwinter i kind of toyed with the idea of well you know the 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 sort of notional lead character of the game is a guy called John Stark, who's like the leader of the the Free Villages police force on the island, and he's the one who kind of leads the fight back against this General Masters with his, you know, sophisticated military force. And I did start writing a story that was kind of about John Stark doing that, but it, it felt weird, and I kept stopping and deleting it all and starting again, because 
it felt weird to be writing because it felt like I was writing fan fiction. Basically, I was writing, you know, here's what would happen if I was playing Midwinter right now. I would ski over there and I would do this, and it was just like it didn't. There was no. Well, it, it would turn into fan fiction. There it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it was <laughs> it was a story that would have made sense if I was playing a game, hmm. but it wasn't a story that would have been particularly interesting to read. Hmm. So I sort of went back and looked at because um, one of the things Mike Singleton also used to love to do was he would write novellas um, that would be included with the games. Lords of Midnight had one, Doom Dutch Revenge had one, Midwinter had one, um, and the the instruction booklet for Midwinter is about a centimeter and a half thick, and a good chunk of that is basically a book about Midwinter, and it starts with these huge sections of like science about climate change and all these sort of pretend memos from government departments and then the asteroid hits and it kind of switches to a more conventional narrative about how the world froze and these characters and it's it's, it's almost like Tolkien-esque but in a kind of science fiction setting you know with the you know the, the characters in this book are the parents of the characters you would eventually see in the game you know as they're coming to the island and they start building it and I thought well I could maybe adapt that into a comic but that felt weird because that was mike's story and he did it perfectly well when he wrote it and i didn't want to just rewrite it for the sake of going i've done a thing so you know i reread the the novella and the very end of the novella like literally the last few lines of the story uh is when this character of general masters the the sort of villain is introduced and that was kind of like my light bulb moment because i kind of went well there's that's the bit we haven't seen yet. That's yeah, the there's the gap. There's yeah, the gap. <coughs> you know, we, where did he we, come from? What was? Yeah, yeah, you know, how did he? You know, it, I think the last line is something about John Stark sort of being aware of this guy, General Masters, who's causing trouble somewhere else on the island. But then, by the time the game starts, the trouble has very much been caused, and General Masters now controls the whole island. So I thought, well, that is a more interesting space to fit your story. You know, how did he come to the island and how was it taken over? Um, and from there, I started thinking about the the story of Paul Revere. Uh, you know, in the American War of Independence, he was the guy who, who rode, you know, the British are coming, the British are coming. And I thought, well, if you could translate that, because the whole thing with the midwinter game is traveling across the island, um, you know, whether it's by skis or snowmobiles or whatever. And it's that kind of, it's you against the environment. It's you against the landscape, and I thought, well, rather than like literally writing the game, I can take that aspect of a race or a chase across a very inhospitable landscape and build the story around that. So the idea of the story was this uh, this village, which I've called Singleton Point in a little nod to Mike. Indeed, yeah. Uh, is, um, it's kind of right on the very southern tip of the island it's kind of where the people who don't really want anything to do with the other islanders come to live um and this is where general masters sort of stages his takeover of the island and uh the lead character is a sort of young woman who's uh her dad and her mum used to be part of this free villages police force uh her mum got killed uh somehow we don't find that out at the start of the story um, and her father was injured you know crippled and he's quite bitter about it and so he's a bit overprotective towards her you know she wants to be out there you know hunting and stuff and he's trying to keep her focused on the the sort of minutiae the you know the boring tasks of just keeping the community going um, and then this 
sort of sophisticated military force suddenly descends on the village. And the, the idea of the story arc is it's, it's the, the journey of this girl, Cassie. Uh, she's kind of forced out of this fairly cosy, if frustrating, environment into this, you know, uh, quest across the island to reach John Stark and the Free Villages um, to sort of tell them about this, this mm. invasion. So, it's obvious you have a deep affection towards the games and the and the, the environments and the worlds that Mike Singleton created. Mm. Um, would you consider making a comic for other franchises of, of um, similar era? Like, you know, yeah, I mean, would you do Shadowfire and would you do stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, Midwinter was kind of unique in the sense that the circumstances surrounding it meant that it made sense for me to do a comic and my own history with the game made it something that I was like, yeah, I really want to do that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, I think, I think comics are an interesting way of adapting game stories, especially ones with, you know, emergent storylines. Um, you know, there are a lot of based on games, comics out there now, you know, there's an Assassin's Creed one, um, all this kind of stuff. Um, but I think these things work best when the game itself doesn't have a story. Yeah, I ha- I have, which is why I sort of mentioned you know um, Shadowfire, which is like yeah, know, it's just, just not a game not many people know about. Um, but it's it was it's a tactical squad game where you had to take a, a, a general from his um, spaceship and then you know arrest him basically, uh, and uh, that there's lots of story there, and that's all emergent because you have to do it, you have to you complete the mission, but how you do that is entirely up to you. Yeah, um, yeah. So. No, I mean, I, I think for, for someone who kind of works in scripting and has worked on writing for games, I find myself quite frustrated with the way stories are told in games. Mm. I'm, you know, as a writer, your your main job is to write cutscenes and sort of expositional dialogue that moves things along, and lots of people going, you know, go, duck, shoot, yeah. follow me. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I've, I've, I don't really think games tell that kind of story very well. No, I think I think they tell them adequately. But you know, if you look at, I'm not having a go at Uncharted, but if you look at something like Uncharted, there is no reason you couldn't tell that story as a film. No, that's right. Yeah, the, the actual gameplay levels are kind of separate from the narrative. If you see what I mean, yeah. you could. You know, you could truncate those shootouts to a few minutes long. That story works just fine as a film. Uh, whereas I think what games, where, where games excel, is when they are providing a space where you can create your own stories, yeah. not in a I am putting the pieces together to make a story. You create the environment in which the players own actions create the story um, and that's really hard for a writer to do because what you're basically doing is you're abdicating responsibility mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're creating the the set dressing and the inspiration and the the space in which the story happens but the story is only what happens when the player is moving the controls um, and that to me is the purest form of game narrative but like I say it requires the writer to kind of step back and say no, it's okay. You know, I've 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 set everything up for you. <laughs> Go and have fun. Yeah. You know, if you if you happen to notice the little background details, that's lovely. But 
Yeah. Otherwise, I'm, I'm more establishing a tone and a mood for you to have fun in. Yeah. I think uh, Stanley Parable did a great job of... Par- of uh, Stanley Parable is, is brilliant yeah, at uh, sort of peeling back yeah, exactly. what game narrative is. And, yeah. You can go it's, left, are you? Oh, bit of a rebel, are you? Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy the... Well, I don't like the term walking simulator because it's usually meant dismissively, mm. but, you know, I yeah. do... You know, I liked Gone Home. Um, Me too. A lot. I liked yeah. Everyone's Gone to the Rapture. But with my sort of writer's hat on, mm. I kind of feel like it's a cheat to try and tell a story in which all the other characters have been taken off the stage. Yeah. Because yeah. all you're really doing is you're exploring the aftermath of a thing that's already happened. Mm. And you're kind of piecing it together, which is, a, you know, it's it's a, it's a legitimate way of doing it. But I, I worry that that becomes the dominant way of the, telling these stories in games. Well, the other way is if you don't, if you do have people wandering around, then it becomes the mannequin problem. And yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. It's the, the weird thing with games is that the hardest thing to simulate is two people talking to each other. <laughs> you know, and if you know if you're making a film, that is the easiest thing to do. You put two people in a room and you point a camera at them and you get them to talk to each other. Yeah. And it, you know, you don't go that no. That, why is why is his why is his arms moving like that? You know, why is why has he got glassy eyes? Um, and it's you know just the interactions, the simulating those interactions is so hard. That's why so many games, even you know stuff like Mass Effect, which has you know really fun dialogue trees and stuff. It is still canned stuff. It's, it's stilted. You know, input, stilted. output, yeah. you've done X, here comes Y. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and yeah, I, I, I feel that, um, that that is where the kind of walking simulator, again, inverted commas, you know, I do like those games, but it's, I think Soma is the one that got it right. Yeah. Like- um, because you are you are an active agent. You have agency in that story and you can change things and you can make decisions and it's not just a passive, I am a, you know, almost like a spectator walking through an event that has already happened. Although that is an aspect of it, you are, you are the character in the story, not a character experiencing a story secondhand, if you see what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've always felt with Gone Home, as as important as that was in terms of representation and bringing in new kinds of stories and perspectives, the story that we needed to be able to tell is the story of the younger sister, <coughs> not the older sister who comes home to find nobody in the house. Yeah. When games, when games can find a way to turn, you know, the romantic turmoil of a, a young girl coming to terms with her sexuality into gameplay then we've cracked it yeah, yeah. you know um at the moment you know what we can do is we can make the experience of exploring that person's life secondhand and piecing it together we can make that fun and engaging and and moving but until we can actually simulate the events that triggered all that that's the big hurdle mm, and that's, that's the weird the thing one. is that you can't you know just having human interaction yeah. you know other than shooting each other in the face or yeah. you know running and jumping is yeah. that's the weird one yeah it's not vr by the way it's probably going <laughs> to help but it's not vr at least that's well I've, I've been thinking a lot about that because i also do um tv working working tv and uh, 
the TV industry is all agog at the idea of VR because it's a, a shiny new toy. And, you know, from a sort of film perspective, VR is really interesting because it means that basically the entire visual language of film is redundant. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, the director frames his shots and it's all no, lit. Yeah. And, you know, your your all me- your mise-en-scene, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even stuff like edits. Yeah. You know, how do you cut to another shot? You know, edit is what film is about. Yeah. That is how film is meaning. You're standing on the set, there's no freaking edit. <laughs> yeah, you know, how do you, how do you tell a story if your audience might choose to turn around and watch what the extras are doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is the big thing that, that TV and film are facing now is, you know, how do we how do we address that oh, how terror. do we yeah yeah so that's, that's interesting. is it going to happen who knows yeah and that's where games have an advantage because they have you know over many many years developed ways of subtly making sure the player is looking in the right direction and you know you know just you know even if it's like just small psychological things like you know people tend to head towards green lights and away from red lights you know so you can just gently steer people that way you know uh, soma does that really well you know, you know, you never herded along a path, but you somehow find yourself following the path anyway, mm-hmm. even though you don't feel like you've been kind of shoveled down. It's just what looks like the right way to go is the right way to go. Yeah, yeah. Breadcrumbs, but not actual breadcrumbs. Yeah, it's just using, you know, human psychology to kind of know, well, people will head over there. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, my last question to you, um, I just want to ask you, how have you managed to separate the skills for writing fiction based on a, a, a structure or a story or a world versus mm. commentating on them or critiquing, critiquing the medium that you and I love so much? Yeah, I mean there is a, you know there is history with this you know going all the way back to the you know the French New Wave of cinema when you had you know guys like Truffaut would you know write reviews of films and then make films and you know even going back to guys like Edgar Allan Poe, he would write books and he would review books. Um, it's, I think because I kind of split quite early in my career, kind of like, you know, I'd be, one year I'd be, you know, writing PlayStation game reviews and then the next year I was writing, you know, I was writing an adaptation of Attack of the Clones for my sins. Um, so there was I kind of split it quite early it wasn't like I sort of decided a few months ago I'm going to be a writer mm. of proper stories yeah and now having um, your brain bleed out of your nose like as you try yeah to yeah but it, it is I think in some ways it helps because being able to approach a story critically when someone else has written it helps you to apply the same things to your own work at the same time that can be crippling because you kind of find yourself reviewing your own work in your head as if it wasn't your work and you know it's very hard to finish something when you're kind of in that mindset because you're constantly going that's not going to work that's not going to work and one of the things i found is to kind of when i'm actually writing is to just shut that voice off and just get to the end right finish it doesn't matter don't it sounds weird to say it but don't worry if it's good at this point Worry that it's not finished yet. Get it done. Get so, it down on paper. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm it. yeah. Once it's finished, you can go back and reread it. And yeah. once you've got that big lump of clay, you can start chipping bits off and yeah. sticking bits on. But until you've got the lump of clay, you know, if you keep stopping and going, oh no, I'm going to have to go back and rewrite that. You, you know, you kind of end up in in this kind of weird yeah. limbo cycle. When you're um, starting to insert semicolons, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> <I> mean, what, <laughs> 
But there's, two, there's two things that always inspire me in this regard. Um, one was an interview I did with the guys from Denki. Right. You know the guys at Denki, a, a little game developer up in Scotland, uh, formed by the guys from DMA Design, who left just before it became Rockstar. And um, I love I love the stuff they do. They make really fun little sort of arcade type games. And when they split off from, I think it was just before GTA 3 was made, um, and they went off to make games for the Skybox. And everyone in the industry was like, are you nuts? You know, look, GTA 3, it's the future. It's, you know, 3D sandbox, and you're making games to be played on a TV remote control. And what they told me was that, you know, they would make games to very strict specifications. The games had to work on, like, dozens of different firmware configurations. They all had to be understandable by your, your nan or your auntie or whatever. Um, they all had to be playable on a remote control. And they were often based on films or TV shows, which meant there was a lot of you know very strict licensing uh, rules about what you could and couldn't do. And they made hundreds of these games in the space of a few years. Um, and what they said to me was, you know, none of those games were amazing. You know, some of them were, you know, good. But what it gave them was this muscle memory for coming up with an idea, implementing it, finishing it, shipping it, doing another one. And it was just that sense of being able to see a project through which was is, more important. Which is a rare thing. In, um, yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, you, you see, you know, you see it all the time, you know, games that just kind of keep that sort of feature creep and things start to bloat and, you know, it's... It, you, you never reached the finish line because you never defined what the finish line was. No. It was always, you know, you know, we've because, got this amazing idea and yeah. we'll know when it's done because it'll be amazing. No, because, and yeah. you just end up kind of wandering off the path. Yeah. And this kind of brings me to the other thing which always inspired me was uh, an interview Alan Moore did mm. uh, where he was talking about the very start of his career where he, he'd quit his job and he was just saying he was going to be a writer and he started writing this kind of vast Dune-like space opera series that was, you know, going to be enormous and it was going to have all this stuff in it. And, you know, after like, you know, a year, two years, it was still nowhere near finished. And he kind of realized that what he was doing subconsciously was he was, he'd he'd created something that he could never finish because as long as it was never finished, he never had to put it out there and have people go, that's crap. Yeah. That's right. You don't want that finish line. You don't want to reach the finish line. As long as it was unfinished, it was always a masterpiece. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so he said, you know, at that point, I just junked the whole thing and he went and started, you know, working for, you know, Doctor Who Monthly, writing Doctor Who comic strips and writing for, you know, uh, you know, girls comics, writing ballerina story. You know, he, he just wrote and wrote and wrote and it was, you know, weekly, monthly deadlines, whatever. Just, you know, write the eight page story, get it out, write another eight page story, get it out. And that's the same thing that Denki was doing. It's that kind of... It's it's a weird thing to argue because you you are you are arguing for the sausage factory. You are saying churn it out. Yeah, uh, that kind of has negative connotations because people think, well, no, you know, you must carefully craft it. You know, it, you know, it's and th- they are both valid. But I think if you're talking about, you know, unless unless you're painting the Sistine Chapel, <laughs> I think you need to have that discipline of going. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to finish it. And I'm going to put it out there. And it may be crap. It probably will be crap. That's fine. Yeah. You know, kind of goes back to what we were saying before about games that say it's okay to fail. Yeah. You know, just finish it. And then if it is rubbish, make sure the next one's a bit better. Yeah. 
and then the one after that should be a bit better. And that's the kind of discipline I try and set for myself is that, you know, just finish it. Yeah. Get it done. done. Go back, polish it, make it the best it can be, but don't obsess over it and I, because yeah, you'll never finish. You'll never finish it, and I would never, like... Gonna... Mm. And I think I think some of the best stuff comes when you are flying on instinct a bit, when you kind of, you kind of go, you know, or even if it's just something that's like... Um, You've got to bodge, you know. You kind of got to bodge it a bit to get it to work. You know, there's a kind of a narrative beat that you've got to hit, and you're not quite getting it. But you kind of go, well, "I'm just going to have to do this and get it to work because I need to move on to the next bit." And then sometimes you kind of read that back later, and you go, "Actually, that, you know, that works really well." Yeah. Because yeah. you're just flying on instinct, and you were just, you know, I love. I just when need to- you sort of see a text that you've written. Sounds a bit egotistical here, but I'm going to say anyway. And like, where did that come from? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, you know, a, a couple of sort of passes to refine and polish stuff is fine, but I, I'm, I'm a big believer in trusting your guts where creative stuff is concerned. You know, your, your first few ideas are generally the ones that are, you know, that are worth pursuing and going back and fretting over them and revising them 6,000 times generally doesn't result in a yeah, massive improvement enough to make it worse. Yeah, it turns into much worse. It turns into a mess. Mm. You overthink it, and that drives me crazy. I do it myself. Like, this is a good joke, or this is a good sort of twist on it. Let's keep going and twist it. Now, stop. Stop. You've done it. Let's move on to the next thing. And uh, that discipline. Yeah. And that, that's what deadlines instill in you is that idea of, you know, you make it as good as it can be yeah. within the restrictions you've got. And people will and be fine with it. Don't worry. They'll be fine. This, yeah, this is also true. You know, that, that again comes from you know having your critical hat on. Is that you know you can you can overthink things. You can sort of obsess over details that other people go, what didn't even notice. <laughs> well, Dan, it's been fantastic having you on. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lots of fun. It's a, it's a shame that we have to end it, but we do. We could yes. go on and on, as, as the audience could probably tell, but uh, <laughs> we're not going to. We do have to bring it to a close. So. Tell us, how can one get a copy of your fine comic from when it arrives? Uh, it is available uh, from mail order if you go to a website called Comixy, C-O-M-I-C-S-Y. Okay. Um, you, can, you can buy it there. It's, it's still on the front page there. Uh, and there's also another of my comics on there called Hexloader, which is a kind of supernatural horror mystery set in the 1980s uh, home computer industry of Britain. Oh, okay. Not, not like Stranger Things, which is an awesome show. At least I liked it anyway. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's more of a kind of if Hellblazer crossed with Manic Miner. Ah, nice. <laughs> that sounds there's weird, bits but, of yeah. hell in Manic Miner, as you and I know. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Not, like, not quite as bad as Banyan Tree, though. That was just... <laughs> the, the product of a diseased mind. Yeah. yeah which is not... He's a, a, he's a poke to sort it yes, out. Yes, yeah. you did, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's fantastic having you on and uh, welcome you back with your, any new ventures you have in, in the world realm of comics. We'd love to have Absolutely. you back on. But uh, wish you the very best of luck with it. Um, Thank you very much. And I will certainly be downloading and, and buying and then and I'm assuming it's got a PDF version as well or I... Protected PDF. Um, I haven't actually got that up there yet because um, right. I need to, really need to resize all the pages. But yes, the print version. Because I'm very old-fashioned when it comes to that. No, kind I of love reading on my iPad. I've got a nice Retina display on the old iPad, so it really comes out. The colours really pop out. It's quite extraordinary. Yes, and yes. Uh, I do a lot of travelling, uh, as you do as well. So it's a really good thing to just flick and see for that or Zelda That's again. Um, <laughs> so. Um, 
Okay, well, yeah, like I said, thank you very, very much for being on. It's been no, great. Thank you for having me. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review, and you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com, and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory, and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter, at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me, any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer, you listen to the show and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show, which is the stablemate podcast, should we say, of spong.com. Bye!